David has had, as you're aware, he's got this crazy call to become king. And basically, roughly since then, roughly since then, he has spent his life running for it. Uh, it's amazing because once God put a calling on his life, everything kind of hit out the window. <clears throat> and he's the guy that's supposed to be king is him. But the guy that is king, on the other hand, has no interest in, in abrogating the throne. So, of course, as a result of that, he wants to kill him. Which, of course, will set us up for the story of Jesus when we know the same thing is going to happen. But David has had two opportunities now where he's had an op- a clear shot to kill this guy. The first time when David and his men were hiding in a cave... And the second time, of course, just in our last chapter, when Saul was sleeping, and David and a man named Abishai came out and took his water jug and his spear. And Abishai is like, please, just give me one shot. Give me one shot. I'll take his own spear. I'll drive it through him. I won't have to do it twice. And David's like, we just really can't do that. And then David takes those things, stands up at a ledge beyond it, and says, Saul... Why in the world, this is a loose paraphrase, why in the world are you looking for me? Why are you, what, do you think I'm after you? If I was really after you, I could have killed you twice now. Clearly I didn't. Come to your senses. And Saul's response to that is really kind of profound in the last chapter. Uh, it says in 1 Samuel 26, 21, Saul says, I've sinned. And then he says, I played the fool and erred exceedingly. Saul's open confession is, wow, am I way off. I am so off. David's been running now for nearly, really, to be honest, he's been running, and by the time we're done with these couple chapters, for roughly 15 years. And he, and he started roughly 14, 15. So half of his life now has been spent playing Jason Bourne. And uh, Saul's response is, you're right, I'm wrong, may you be blessed. You're going to do great things. You are going to prevail. Uh, you'll do great things and prevail. And Saul went his way and David his. And that takes us into this chapter. Look at just the first couple of verses. We'll pray and then we'll start digging into the rest of it. But look at chapter 27 and the weird tone of these verses. Uh, chapter 27, verse 1 says, And David said in his heart, Now I shall perish someday by the hand of Saul. There's nothing better for me than I should speedily escape to the land of the Philistines, which, by the way, are are Israel's biggest enemy. And Saul will despair of me, the biggest communal enemy, enemy. And Saul will despair of me to seek me anymore in any part of Israel, so I shall escape out of his hand. David arose and went over with 600 men who were with him to Achish, the son of Maoch, the king of Gath. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, you know that there are certain nights where the feeling is one of massiveness, of energy and just busyness and uh, just clutter and, and chaos. And there are other nights that are just quiet and they're intense and they're intimate. And this is one of those nights And I really do believe you want to do surgery tonight. It's nights like this where everything has to be still so that we can actually hear you and let you rip us open and do what you have to do in us. So God, I just pray that that you would tonight do everything you intend to do. You've got so much, Lord, you want to do. And you have exactly, you know exactly what you want to do and to whom at, at any given time. And here we are, Lord, in this room. And we come to interface with you and allow you free right to do whatever you want in our lives. So, Lord, speak a word to each of us, Lord, into our lives in a way, Lord, that we get, we understand. And we take the direction you have for us, please. So, Lord, I just commit this time. I pray for a fresh anointing of your Holy Spirit. I pray that we'd have so much fun in your word, that we'd be captivated in your word, and that your word would burst open and come alive, and that this time would be an amazing time perfectly spent so Lord this is your night have it now I pray please in Jesus name Amen again don't just believe me don't just assume it's true because I say so search the scriptures let the Bible be the final answer so so when do you give up the betrayals the rejections the empty promises 
the feeling of constantly feeling outcast, made fun of, the lack of feeling like you're at home. When do you give up? When do you finally say, that's enough? And what does that look like? That looks like different things for different people. For some, to give up just means you head back to the stoner lifestyle or crazy drunken or violent or whatever sinful lifestyle you came from. Somewhere in all of it, it all looks the same in the eyes of God. You run back into the world. You run back into that which has already declared war on Jesus and already declared war on that of Jesus like yourself. And you get tired of fighting, especially when the infighting happens, when things like you seem like you get shot more from friendly fire than you do from the enemy. It's not that way, but it seems like it. And it's easy to assume that. All you have to do is start listening to the enemy and you sit down to be his audience and he'll give you the whole show. In David's case, he seemed to look really good up to a certain point just a couple chapters ago. I mean, he was running for his life. He had saved, um, saved cities that will turn him in and David doesn't go and kill them. <coughs> David really had a sense of honor. He had a sense of dignity. But somewhere down the line, he met a Nabal. Nabal means fool. And in Nabal's case, this guy says, in essence, who do you think you are? And he got David thinking about himself. What he got was this Nabal got David focusing on himself. And that is the first place you need to go to backslide. In chapters 27 and 28 and 29, David is going to be in a backslide that will last 16 months. That's over a year that David is completely not where he's supposed to be. Now, I don't know how long it is for you, and if you even know what a backslide is, but a backslide is what David's about to do here, where you were walking tight with the Lord, and now you're not. Now, look at For some people, a backslide, if my wife were to backslide, you probably wouldn't know it for a, quite a while. Because she wasn't necessarily an outwardly nasty person before she was saved. Now, someone like myself or some of us here, if we were to backslide, you'd know it. Because the person we were was so contrary to the person we are that the smallest change in that direction is going to be pretty clear and obvious. David's one of those guys. And I want to warn you, we all have Nabal's fools in our life. And interestingly enough, a fool can be even a friend that just gets you thinking a lot about yourself. Once David starts thinking about himself, David grabbed a hold of offense. He was offended now by Nabal. And him, in this case, David had guarded this man's sheep. And now the guy has no interest in sharing them. Now it's a time where he feasts and he's not giving David any. David not only grabbed offense as a result of that, but David also grabbed entitlement. He got to a point where he felt like he was entitled to some of those dang sheep and he wasn't getting any. And once he grabbed entitlement... He grabbed vindication. I'm going to take the matter into my own hand, and I'm going to make this thing happen my way. I'm getting revenge. But ultimately, you wouldn't think it's next in the route. David grabbed hopelessness. And that's where we're at in this chapter. I get the idea of being offended. And I get the idea from being offended, feeling entitled. Because once you start thinking about yourself, you start thinking how everybody else owes you something. But when you start focusing then on that, then you'll start focusing on who's not given what they should. Happens in every marriage if you're not careful. Happens in every friendship. And it happens in every ministry if you're not careful. So, what do you do? You start focusing on how everyone else is a loser, how everybody else is stupid, how everybody else is clearly a hypocrite, how everybody else out there, this whole thing is one big joke. And when you get there, whether you know it or not, you're speaking like a hopeless individual. And you don't even realize, perhaps, you are where David is at this moment. Remind you, David just had a chance to kill this guy that was trying to kill him, and he didn't. So as a result of that, David now has been focusing on himself. And even though he has this great moment with not killing Saul. 
David now is focusing on his own preservation instead of being used by God. It's an easy place to go because now you're not fitting in with guys you used to be the coolest with. Now you're not the hot thing when you used to be. Now people are making fun of you that you used to stand with to make fun of others. You used to lead the crew. And now you're like, if I keep going deeper into this Jesus thing, they are so, I'm so going to be alone. David is with 600 men and their families. He has at least two wives. That's clear here. And David looks and he finally goes, you know what? I'm done. The best place for me is the world. What difference does it make? If I'm going to get stabbed in the back, it might as well be from someone I would expect it. And the moment you start talking like that, you've bought the plot, you've lost sight of God. Because when you look at God, you see goodness, love, care. And we're supposed to be, our mouths are supposed to be fountains of that goodness. The rest of the world could talk about how horrible the world is. They already know how horrible the world is. Strangely enough, we become the harbingers, the newsboys, of how horrible the church is, how horrible Christians are. What do you think that does? And so what we do is we stop believers from growing like they could, and we certainly stop unbelievers from coming. And somehow we think in this we are being a mature Christian, and what we're really being is a David like here. And what David says is, you know, what's the use? I've been running. Now, I'm, and I'll give the guy a little bit of a break. He's been running for over a decade. And he's not just been running from the king, he's been running from all the king's men. Many of which, by the way, David has, uh, has led. He's, more than likely, many he's trained. And David just looks and he goes, You know, if this keeps up, I'm just going to die. Which tells us that David has forgotten God's promises. And you know, the more you stare at your problems and the more you stare at the hypocrisy of others, the easier it is to forget God's promises. First of all, the easiest thing to do is to forget God's promises on them. Then it's, once you start forgetting the promises God could place on them, well, then you'll forget them about yourself, too. You know what become in the end of it all? Nasty, stinky people that nobody wants to be around. You've been on a public transportation, you know, be it, be it a train or a bus, and somebody's come in that clearly doesn't smell well. And they can sit wherever they want because everyone's going to get out of their way anyways. We become like that. It's written all over our face. So David says, you know, the only place for me to go is the one place I know Saul won't go. His enemies. What David is not seeing, though, please understand, is that, David, that Saul's biggest enemy is God at this moment. Not that God is actually seeking to be Saul's enemy. Saul is actually becoming his. The Philistines are just a tool. Like any trial is going to be in your life. It's just a tool. We read in verse 2, Then David arose and he went with his 600 men who were with him to Achish, which is really funny, because David, if you remember, in the beginning of his running, had gone to Achish. Now, whether this is like Achish Jr., or whether it's the title that's given, we really don't know, or whether it's the same guy. Remember, David was, he wrote one of the most beautiful psalms as a result of that. But he was captured in Gath, or captured, taken to Gath, taken to the king. The king that says, weren't you the guy that they sang those songs? David has slain just tens of thousands of, by the way, this king's people. And then David fakes madness, and he drools on himself and scratches at the doorpost. And the king goes, do I really have a shortage of madmen that you've got to bring me one more? And he goes, get this guy out of here. And David is delivered out of that situation. And he writes the most beautiful psalm, Psalm 34, where it says that I sought the Lord and he delivered me from all of my fears. But I find this interesting. Nowhere in these 16 months, though there are 71, 72 different psalms clearly ascribed to David in the 150 that are listed, we have none that are clearly denoted as written during this time of David's backslide. The sweet psalmist who can write songs in the hardest of moments now that he backs away and hides in enemy territory, there's just no, there's no inspiration there. You dry up and die. And you just can't write songs like that. 
not at least ones that matter. So it tells us David arose and he went with the 600 men that were with him. Now, this is an important point. Because David is called to be a leader. And even though David isn't king yet in the eyes of all of the people, although Saul recognizes him too, David's got these 600 men and their families. And he's a, listen, because he's called to be a leader, every choice he makes affects over a thousand people, whether he knows it or not. And you, I look around this room, you guys are all called to be mucho influential. I was up for like a really terrible slaughter of all kinds of languages. You are really called to be huge influences on people's lives. And because you were called to be that, whether you want to be or not, you're going to be. And if you're going to be, the issue isn't whether you're going to be, then the issue is what kind of influence are you going to be? And there is no falling back without fallout. There is no backsliding without creating a wake of injury with people all around you. And David here is dragging now with him 600 men and their families and his own wives and children, if they're heavy, hasn't yet, with him into enemy territory. And you start backsliding. It is amazing who you'll drag with you. We can go all the way back to the garden to see that. So David went, uh, dwelt with Ahish in Gath. Gath, by the way, all the way back in Joshua, was a place where there were still giants in Joshua 11, by the way. A giant looks like a guy that's roughly 10 feet tall, by the way. As crazy as that sounds, go to Ripley's. What you'll find is that the tallest guy was taller than that. 1 Samuel 5-7 through tells us it was the place where the ark was captured and taken to, where guys got hemorrhoids and God struck them with rats. Yeah, you think God, God knows how to crack a good joke there. Uh, you can just see him saying, you guys are a pain in the rump. Now, 1 Samuel 17 tells us that the Goliath was called the champion of Gath, which, by the way, was killed by David. He was, if you think about it, he was Saul's best soldier. And now he's actually who took down the biggest guy on the other side. And then with that, David now feigns madness, and now he's gone and he's joined this crew. And what we're going to find is he sort of joins them. But he's clearly in a backslide, and that backslide is called compromise at best. So it says he dwelt there, he and his men, each man with his household, David and his two wives, Achinoam the Israelites, and Abigail the Carmelites, Nabal's widow. Verse 4. And it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath, and so he sought him no more. Question, quick question. Does Saul now know that David is in Philistine territory? It says in verse 4, it was told Saul that David had fled to Gath. Saul knows that David's now with the Philistines. David says to Achish, if I have now found favor in your eyes, let them give me a place in some town in the country that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? Now, understand what David's trying to do, right? David's just trying to tuck into some tiny little place somewhere and disappear. And by the way, can I say, because of the atom splitters, God has called you guys to be. Now, this, he could have filled this room with other people tonight that might not have had the kind of crazy, huge calling on their lives. Though I believe God's got a huge calling in everyone's life to some degree. But as I look at you guys, I see, I see the world changing. And when you try to run from that, you usually try to run not just to some big place. You try to run to some place where you could just kind of blend in and just kind of disappear. You know, Jonah tries that. It doesn't work real well for him. And what makes it even more fun is the place that God had called him to was 900 to 1,000 miles inland. So when you read about him getting swallowed by a giant fish and then barfed on the land, please understand, unless he had like the super vomit launch, forgive me for saying so, this guy's still got to walk 1,000 miles or walk with a, or ride a camel 1,000 miles bleached with the animal's ass, stomach acids in the sun. Now, that's kind of a funny thought when you think about it. Especially when the people he goes to in Nineveh, by the way, they worship, well, actually, we could say it's about 700 miles, they, they worship a fish god. He's like kind of a merman, their god, the god that they worship. So when he kind of comes out and he goes, like, I just came out of a fish, well, that means something to them. So actually, the whole thing is going to work to God's favor. But where do you think you can hide from God? No matter where you try to go, what David's going to learn is, he goes, even if I made my bed in hell, you're still going to find me there. 
He goes, even if I go and say, well, the darkness is going to hide me. He goes, but God, you're light. There's no place that's dark when you're there. Because there's no place I can hide from you or your spirit. That sounds like a guy who tried and really understands. So I get this and I look at this and I realize David's not going, can you just give me something kind of little somewhere? Can you kind of, you know, can you put me in something that's got like a shire at the end of it? You know, like a shire, you know, something where you can, maybe there's like one stop on like the southern line that doesn't work anymore for anyone anyways because they cancel all their lines. I'm not bitter. You know, and, you know, and maybe it stops there once a day, you know, that kind of thing. Can, do you have like a, do you have a, can you put me in Dingle? You know, something where nobody goes. Because why in the world should I be here with you? Akish gave him Ziklag in verse 6. Interestingly enough, by the way, according to Joshua, Ziklag was supposed to be allotted to the, Ju- the people of Judah, of the twelve tribes, which, by the way, David's from. This property was supposed to be theirs anyways. Therefore, Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. Verse 7. Now, the time that David dwelt in the country of the Philistines was one full year and four full months. How long before you really... Can I say it this way? I mean, you, you kind of get to missing God and the things of God, but if you're honest, you kind of get to missing you. You get to missing the person that used to laugh more, that actually people like to be around because you were so full of joy. You, you get to missing the person that wasn't afraid of a trial. You get to missing the person that wasn't overwhelmed easy. You get to missing the person that you knew somehow you could walk into a situation and, and somehow it was going to be made a little bit better because of what God was going to do. The person that approached everything with great hope. You get to missing that guy. Not to mention all the cool things and the reason why that guy was that guy. Because of the person you really walked with. Did you miss that person when you walk away? One year and... You look at this and you're like... One year and four months. How, how long before you're like, Man, I'm so sick of the me I've become. I don't even want to be around me. Well, David's got a show to put on now. Because somewhere in it, although he's trying to hide among the world and the Philistines, there's still a king of Israel in his heart. So what we read in 8, this is the danger of what happens when you try to keep both sides happy. David went and his men went up and raided the Geshurites. How many of you are familiar with Geshurites? Yeah, I kind of thought so. Uh, or the Gerzites, for that matter, right? Gerzites, yeah. How many of you here are a Gerzite? Yeah, I figured that. Uh, and the Amalekites, you probably heard of them. Now, here's the important thing. Gerzites were actually an enemy tribe of people that, according to Deuteronomy chapter 3, Manasseh was actually up to the border of but never really took. Well, we read, by the way, that the children of Israel didn't drive out these people in Joshua 13, though they were supposed to. The Gerzites, the same. Enemies that Ephraim didn't drive out in Joshua, and, I'm sorry, in Judges 1. Uh, the Amalekites, by the one, they're the ones we get the most press on. They're all the way back in Genesis 36. But they're the people, once Israel gets out of Egypt, remember that whole, let my people go well, in all of that, the first thing, once they get out, people are tired. Obviously, the old people are kind of lagging behind a bit. And what we read, by the way, is that they get attacked. And they get attacked, and it's the weaker people that get attacked first. And they get attacked by the Amalekites. It's the kind of time where they show up, and that's in Exodus 17. In a valley called the Valley of Rephidim, where, if you remember, as long as Moses has his hands raised in surrender and praise, people start winning. And that was when we're introduced to another interesting character, a guy named Joshua. The guy who will actually lead the people into the promised land. He's the commander of the army. And as long as the hands were raised in surrender, if you will, the battle was being won. In Numbers 24, when Balachim is prophesying, he says that though they were first among the nations, they shall be last until they perish. In Deuteronomy 24, God says, remember what those guys did to you? Don't worry, we have a day specifically called where this is going to come down and they're going to deal with it. And that was Saul's last strike, if you remember, when God says, now let's go take on those Amalekites. The reason why they're even there to bother is because Saul didn't do what he was supposed to. And here's the point. David is not killing Israelites, though he's with the Philistines. He's actually killing the enemies of Israel. But it says... Those nations were the inhabitants of the land of old. As you go to Shur, who's viewed as far as the land of Egypt, verse 9, it says, whenever David attacked the land, he left neither man or woman alive. 
But he took away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the apparel, and returned and came to Achish. And Achish would say, Well, where have you made the raid today? And David would say, Against the southern area of Judah, or against the southern area of the Yarmelites, or against the southern area of the Kenites. And David would save neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, saying, Well, lest they should inform on us, saying, Well, this is what David really did. And thus was his behavior all the time he dwelt in the country of the Philistines. And Achish believed David, saying, He has made his people Israel utterly abhor him, therefore he'll be my servant forever. Now understand, this is what David's done. What David has to do is, is that he knows that if he's going to really prove to Achish that he really is part of his, of his plan, that what he's going to have to do is he's going to have to kill someone. Philistines were known for that. They were ruthless and they didn't have a problem killing anyone, ripping babies out of mothers. Forgive me, but that's what they were known for things like this. And so David knows that he's going to have to kill someone. Now, traditionally, what happens is the Philistines were very proactive. So they went to war on anyone on any side to gain more land. What David does is he just goes in and he can't just go and take on an army. He kills everybody. Every woman, every child, every... I mean, if they'd breathed, he killed it if it was a human being because he couldn't have anybody grass on him. He couldn't have anyone rat on him. David has gone nuts. In his backslide, what a backslide looks like to David is murder and lies. And then he takes all of this spoils and comes back and says, yeah, I killed the people, my own people, because I'm so with you. Now, clearly David's lying from, uh, we understand that as readers, but understand David is really, really trying to play this thing out as if he really is doing all of this for Achish. But here is the warning that when you start trying to play both sides and we call that compromise, there's going to come a time when you're going to get pinned to the wall where you're going to have to commit one way or the other. And you watch this. I watch this with Christian artists, which, by the way, the easiest thing to do is to point the finger instead of pray for them. But I look at them and I watch them sometimes and it's like, you know, they get caught in a contract and now they have to make money. And so now they're like, well, if I just loosen up on this and, and so forth, and sooner or later, it just sounds like, you know, like what's the best, lyrically, what's the best secular music? Something that says nothing. What's the worst Christian music? That which says nothing. And you realize it's, there's no difference in that. It just seems innocuous and harmless. When the Bible, when, when you talk about people that are really in love, it's like from the abundance of your heart, your mouth doesn't just speak, it sings. And I, I realize that. And I realize that all of a sudden they start compromising and sooner or later they get to this point, it's like, am I going to be a secular artist or not? And you start playing around with this thing where it's like, you know, it's like a guy that's married, but he's trying to live single and he's trying to play both sides. And then sooner or later, he's going to have to pick one. Because you can't walk both. And David's trying to do both here. He's somehow in all of this trying to keep the king of the Philistines happy. But at the same time, he's trying to kind of keep his own nation from hating him because he's actually still hurting their enemies. But because of that, David's gone mad. And this is the dangerous line of compromise when you try to keep both the world and God happy at the same time. is you start going nuts. And the choices you make, you would never make otherwise. And you're going to get to that point where you numb yourself so much to both sides that you get pinned to the wall and you're going to have to choose one or the other. The question is, if you were to get pinned, which side would you really choose? Would you say, you know what? I don't want to disappoint you. But this is really where my heart is. The truth is told is, your heart's already there anyways. And David, at this moment... His whole life is going to get pushed to the wall. Now understand, David's not the only one in compromise. Saul is too. Saul's in complete rebellion because God has already told him to get off the throne and Saul is not getting off the throne. We're going to find out what happens here. Now, we end chapter 27 with this simple thing. Saul is convinced. Sorry, sorry. Achish is convinced that David is completely blown in and therefore he would never go back. And by the way, here's the good news. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. But you feel like, man, I've so blown it. I've taken an inch and I've taken an inch and I've taken an inch. And now all of a sudden, where in the world am I? Where is that person that I know should be there? I'm acting insane trying to make both sides happy. You know, the moment you take a stand, someone's going to stand against you. You know that. So you better take a stand on a side that's worth standing for. Well... 
Chapter 28, verse 1 says, Now it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. Now, now we got a real problem because David has not ever killed, we see here at least, an Israelite, only their enemies. Although he's told the king he has. And you know how this is. This happens in a lot of movies where you lie until all of a sudden you get caught to that place where you have to put up or shut up. And now there's a war against Israel and the king wants to bring David in. Now, this is a place where David obviously has to choose a side. If David doesn't choose a side, you know what will happen? He'll get shot from both. And it happened in those days that the Philistines gathered their armies together for war to fight with Israel. And Achish said to David, You assuredly know that you will go out with me to battle, you and your men. And David said to Achish, Surely you know what your servant can do. Achish said to David, Therefore I will make you one of my chief guardians forever. Look at the future you have in the world here. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had lamented for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. By the way, I remind you, Samuel was the one who anointed both of these men, first Saul, and then fired him, and then David. And it says, Saul had put the mediums and the spiritists out of the land. And you realize that Saul, in his better moment, had kicked out everyone that was actually doing that which fought against God, tried to replace God. This sets the scene here. The Philistines gathered together and encamped at Shunem, by the way, belonging to Issachar, according to Joshua 19. And so Saul gathered all Israel together and they encamped at Gilboa. Now we have the Philistines to fight the Israelites again. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid and his heart trembled greatly. And the idea of this is that Saul became so afraid he started to convulse. I'd like you to consider the fact that Saul knows that he's never had a victory without God. And to make it even worse, his star player has switched sides. The guy that was his go-to guy to defend him is the guy that now is, is, is heading up there. And remember, Saul knows that David's with the Philistines. And you realize Saul's back is to the wall. But wait a minute. Uh, David's back was to the wall. Truth be told, both are. God is multitasking. God knows how to bring a situation in that does more than one thing. As a matter of fact, how many times do you ever think God does anything for a single reason? And here becomes the crazy part. Something happens in your life. We've talked about it with David's situation because he's a leader. Every decision he makes is going to affect at least a thousand people. And understand, in this situation, if we know that any decision you make affects that, well, imagine every decision God makes. And somehow something happens to us, and we think we are entitled to demand God give an answer for why he let it happen. God, why did I get the flu on a day? Or why did I get that zit when I was supposed to get my passport picture? Or, oh, God, why did I get, why did I miss the bus at the moment? Like we, as if somehow God's got to tell us. But if God were to tell us every reason why that one seemingly insignificant incident happened, we would be here for the rest of our life while God explained. Because one single event, any event in history, is going to affect countless people if we really weigh out the effects of it. You sitting here right now is creating a ripple effect you don't even know about yet. There may be some day, it may even be tonight, where something is said that so buries its way and burns its way into your heart, burrows like it should, that you wake up tonight and God says, now what are you going to do about that? And it changes your whole life. Why not? It may be, that it may be a year from now, somebody's in a desperate place and you open your mouth and you share something that God gave and spoke to your heart tonight in council. It may be that it's a moment like this that the decision you make then affects every other part of your life from this point and steers to a direction that you go, finally, this is what I needed. And the reason I say that is God knows how to multitask and he knows how to bring in the one thing that's going to get the results he needs. Sometimes, by the way, the worst possible situation that can happen to you is exactly what God wants to get. The, the results that only that situation will get will be the thing that it'll actually take. Some people, it's losing a limb or a loved one or prison time. 
for someone to finally actually go, am I going to get serious about this God that I claim to serve? I know people that have been electrocuted and say that's the best thing that ever happened to them and not because they love electricity, but because they were running from God and God knew how to swipe their feet from falling onto the tracks. So Saul here, he's been running from God. He's going to deal with him in this battle. David's been running from God. And he's going to deal with David in this situation, the same situation. And it's one battle between two sides. Well, three. Because David and Saul's problem are not with the Philistines. David and Saul's problems, first and foremost, are with God. And no matter how crazy a person is, and no matter how many you want to blame anyone else, sooner or later, if you know God's in control, it's got to wind up at his doorstep. And I've got to be honest, by the time we're done with this, I really feel like I'm going to need to ask God for forgiveness. Just for the times where I want to complain about something, anything. That instead of praising Him like I should, because somehow I'm focusing more on someone's failures, or weaknesses, or just situations that are disturbing or inconvenient, that I am God's goodness. Because clearly David doesn't seem to see that here. So Saul sees that he's in a problem. The Philistines have now gathered together in battle. Saul is freaking out, and he is quaking as a result of it. Saul was the original Quaker. Now, with that, Saul is going to go and seek help. Verse 6. When Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams, or by Urim, or by the prophets. We get the dreams thing. We get the prophets thing. Interesting He is looking for some esoteric, supernatural experience. Did you notice that? There's no clear and simple truth here. He's looking for something touchy-feely. Give me something that's going to be experiential, like a dream. Or somebody that's going to do something really awesome, and I'm going to go, wow, there it is. But the interesting was the one in between. You see, this Urim thing goes all the way back to Exodus 28 when the high priest was actually called to make decisions he had two stones that he kept in his breastplate one was called the Urim and the other was called the Tumim Urim means light Tumim means perfections and the most to be, I mean some people get really fun and funky with it they say well you know what happened is these things were like magic batteries and then when it came the the stones that were in the front would light up like a light bright well you know i think that that's all really fun and dandy but i think it's a little simpler than that maybe i'm just a simpleton but i kind of get the idea one stone was a white one and one stone was a black one and a white was a yes and a black was a no you know and so we kind of reached in and he grabbed one he's like should we do this and he pulls it out and it's like it's a white stone well that's lights let's go Oh, that's a black stone. That's perfections. God said no. What's interesting is, and when we see that, by the way, in Exodus, you know, again, Exodus 28 and the Leviticus 8 and Deuteronomy 33, we see that. The Urim and the Tumim. You got the yes or the no. You're asking God a question. You're giving God the options. What's interesting is, one of the two is missing when Saul is seeking that. Did you notice? He said, God didn't answer by the Urim. The Urim's the yes. He's like, you know, I'm like, God, I need some kind of answer from you. Here's my yes. And, you know, people do this because they say, oh, God hasn't answered my prayer yet. How about if he answered it with a no? That's still God answering your prayers. Oh, no, I'm sure that if I keep asking, God's going to finally say yes. But what if the thing you're asking for is actually really bad for you right now? And God knows that what you need more than anything is a relationship with him. And if he gave it to you, you would really lose that relationship. Saul's in a place in his rebellion where the only answer he's going to hear from God, that he wants to hear from God, is a yes. Can I say, when you're at that place, you know you're in trouble. When you're forcing your will upon God and saying, God, as long as you get behind it, we're going to be friends, he's not the Lord of your life. And you start telling God, you can touch anything but this area, this is my thing, it's just not going to work. We see clearly the rebellion here, and we're going to see it be to be honest, so funky that it's humorous. But here what we see is that Saul is in a place where he's looking for, I mean, he's freaking out because he's in a battle. And God allows battles to happen and your backslidden moments so you finally get to the point where you surrender to him like you need to. Because he's not calling you into the battle, he's calling you to follow him into the battle. Verse 7, Saul said to his servants, well, none of that stuff's working, that kind of Christian stuff, or we will, or the Jewish stuff. 
Find me a woman who's a medium. Remember how Solid kicked out all of those gals? So give me a psychic. That I may go to her and inquire of her. His servant said to him, well, in fact, there is a woman who is a medium in Endor. By the way, it's interesting. How many of you have ever heard, like, the witch of Endor? Or, well, you get the idea where that came from. That came right from the scripture. But here's my favorite part. Saul disguised himself. Put on other clothes. And he went with two men with him. And he came to the woman by night. And he says, please conduct a seance for me. Bring up for me the one that I shall name for you. No. The first thing we ever learned about Saul, do you remember the one thing other than God said he was good looking? The one particular physical trait about him? He was the tallest. He was head and shoulders taller than every other person. So we have to pick sort of the shortest person for the moment. So Haley, come here for a second. Sorry. Yeah, I did that so that Hugo could feel better about himself. Now, we about the same height, you and me, Adam. Yeah. So come on, come on up here for a second, Adam. Okay, I'd like you to take a look for a second here. Now, if they stand next to each other, notice here. If we're really going to be honest, if go ahead and stand right behind her for a second. If you do that, I might know that's. Don't worry, you don't have to get like too weird. He is basically a head taller than her. Did you notice that? He could probably put his head just upon under her head with, with very little altercation. Although we're not going to ask him to do that because that would way freak out. Haley. So, we're going to, so we can't do that for the moment. So we have to do this. We have to get your shoulders. We have to get it to where this part of them is right at her head level. So and see how much that we have to add to that. Right? So, so that means we have, yeah, we have to get him to stand on something. Let's try this for the moment. See if you could stand on that one part right there. Nicely done. So that's about, look at that, her head's about there. Do you get that? Now I'd like you to take a look at this. The average person in that day was roughly five and a half feet tall. Which makes you now, if you think about it, we have to add about this much to them, and we have to add that much to him. Now take a look. What if every person in Israel was as tall as Haley, except for one person named Saul? Are you with me so far? This guy is going to go to a psychic. And what he's going to do is he's going to disguise himself. Do you see how ridiculous that is? Exactly. How is a guy like this disguise himself so you don't recognize that Minute Bull has walked in to a place where only the Lollipop Guild has been living? Okay, have a seat, you guys. I just Thank you. Get the idea here that... As we start looking at this, that if this, if this gal were worth anything, you'd think the first thing she'd notice is, wow, you're remarkably tall. Are you sure you're not Saul? What do you think he does? Like puts on like a fake mustache, glasses, you know, does he tie his feet up in the back and walk on his knees? Or does he pretend like he's on stilts? I mean, think about how goofy this is. He's with two guys, so he's with a couple bodyguards. So the guy walks in. He's the king, I remind you at the moment. Uh, well, he's choosing to be. And with that, he's got secret service with him. What does he disguise himself as? And he walks into this place at night. It doesn't matter when it is, day or night. When the guy is that much taller than everyone else, I would be suspicious. Anyways. And he said, please conduct a seance for me. Bring up the one that I shall name for you. I want to make really clear, according to Scripture, God calls witchcraft an abomination. Then you say, well, that's an Old Testament thing. An abomination means something that is so horrible it makes you nauseous. That's the idea. What people do in some countries to children, to me, is an abomination. And no matter how old I get, that's not going to change. If God were to, you know, remember, God is not someone who changes. Some people say, well, that's the Old Testament God. Do you think somewhere down the line he got a personality swap? Like he was a mean and nasty old guy with a beard, and then he turned into this nice, you know, lamb-carrying Jesus by the New Testament? Truth be told, there was a kindness, a goodness, and a severity to both. And the reason I say that is, the reason why God doesn't like this, or he actually despises it, is because it's what people seek in replacement of him. And when he created you to be with him, anything 
that replaces or steps in the way to be the replacement for, for him, God's going to declare he's going to declare war on it. And there are all kinds of things that people want that only they can get from God so they find cheap substitutes. In my opinion, a couple that really love each other, a wife that really loves her husband and a husband that really loves her wife, nothing should get between them. And if, you'd say, if one of the two of them runs off and goes and finds a prostitute, that's the replacement. That should be an abomination to the other. Because you're like, hey, 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 that belongs to me alone. That betrayal is what God feels when people go after things that only God can give. But they go after it another way. Now, according to this, by the way, the woman actually really does perform a seance and really does call up a spirit. So we can't say that that doesn't happen because it happens here in Scripture. Now, what's interesting is like, all right, I want you to call up somebody. I'm going to tell you who it is. And she's like, okay. Well, you know, here's a response, by the way. The woman says to him in verse 9, look at it with me because it's interesting. Look, you know that's what Saul has done. Now, I wonder if Saul's actually thinking she's playing with him. Remember, he's Saul. You remember what Saul has done? Notice she doesn't call him king, by the way. How he has cut off the mediums and the spiritists from the land. Why then do you lay a snare for my life? This is entrapment. You know, cause me to die. Saul swore to her by the Lord, and he said, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Interesting. I believe that is the last time Saul will ever say the name of the Lord. In other words, I promise by the Lord, you're not going to get busted by this. I guarantee you, Saul is not going to punish you for this. By the way, she has no idea she's talking to Saul. So the woman says, who shall I bring up for you? And he says, bring up Samuel for me. Now, it's a fairly common name. I guess she doesn't realize which Samuel she's calling up. I don't know how this thing works. I do know my mom was way into the occult when I was a kid, and they used to have seances in her house. I don't know who they were trying to call up or whatever. All I know is I was in another room. It just seemed weird and goofy to me. When a woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice, freaked her out. And the woman spoke to Saul, saying, why have you deceived me? You're Saul. It took that for her to figure it out, by the way. And the king said, don't be afraid. What did you see? The woman said to Saul, I saw a spirit ascending out of the earth. So she said to him, so he said to her, well, what's his form? What does he look like? And he said, an old man is coming up covered with a mantle. Saul perceived that it was Samuel. He stood with his face to the ground and he bowed down. Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Now we know when Jesus tells us the parable of Lazarus in Luke 16, that those that died prior to Jesus died in faith and were comforted at the bosom of Abraham. I can only assume Saul, Samuel was there. So why in the world would he want to leave that comfort to go and deal with the guy that the last time you deal with him, you fired him? You know. So I understand that. You know. And then the guy tried to go and kill you and arrest David, you know, whatever. And then he wound up just falling down naked and prophesying. You could see, he's like, hey, we weren't friends. We didn't end on a good note here. Why in the world do you want to bring me back now? It's amazing how sometimes when people have a really hard time, even though they were your enemy, they're your best friend again. If they think somehow you can get them out of that particular jam. So why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul said, I'm deeply distressed for the Philistines make war against me and God has departed from me and does not answer me anymore. Neither by prophets or dreams. Notice he didn't mention the Thummim. Therefore, I called you that you may reveal to me what I should do. I don't know what to do. Samuel answers, and this is really important here. Why do you ask me, seeing that the Lord has departed from you and become your enemy? And the Lord has done for himself as he spoke for me. Yeah, I already told you this was going to happen. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to a neighbor, your neighbor David, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord nor execute his fierce wrath upon Amalek. Therefore, the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons, well, they'll be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. I remind you, because David is called to be a leader, every decision he makes is going to affect many, many people. That's Saul, too. Because Saul is called to be a leader, even though he's been fired, he refuses to step off. His disobedience is affecting thousands and thousands of people. And we're going to see that his stupid choice in rebellion is going to kill a lot of people. Now, understand what 
Samuel is saying, because it's something we really need to hear because we're almost done. We're only a few verses from the end now. Samuel says, if you aren't listening to what God's already said to you, why do I need to tell you something new? And when God's made something really clear to you and you've just said there's no possible way that's going to happen, it's amazing how little you'll get after that. Because God's like, look, I'm trying to make this clear to you. I don't want to confuse you with new information when you won't obey the stuff you already know. I'd rather keep it simple. And, and, you know, and Saul's like, I'm freaking out. The Philistines are here. And Samuel's like, why in the world would I tell you something new? You didn't listen to the last stuff I said. Why would I expect you to listen now? But if you want to listen, this is what I'm going to tell you. You're going to die in this battle. Have a good time. See you tomorrow. <laughs> you know, and that's the end of it. And we read then, verse 20, the immediately Saul fell full length on the ground and was dreadfully afraid because of the words of Samuel. That would do it for me. And there was no strength in him, for he had not eaten. He had eaten no food all day and all night. The woman came to Saul, saw that he was severely troubled, and he said, Look, your maidservant obeyed your voice, and I've put my life in my hands and heeded the words in which you spoke to me. Now, therefore, please heed the voice of your maidservant and let me set a piece of bread before you and eat, that you may have strength, have strength when you go on your way. Now, understand, this sounds really hospitable and kind, but Saul has fallen over and he can't get up. He's fallen and he can't get up. And she's like, look, at, let me give you something so you can get up and get out of here. That's what she's saying. It'd be like a guy that's drunk. She's like, let me get you some coffee. It's not that I want you sober. I just want you gone. That's what she's doing here. So listen. No, she says that you'll have strength and you'll go your way. Verse 23, he refused. He's good at saying no now. He's going, no, I won't eat. So his servants together with the woman urged him. And he heeded their voice. Then he arose from the ground and sat on the bed. And the woman, I love this, had a fatted calf in the house and she hastened to kill it. No, wait, stop, stop, stop. She had a cow in her house. Did you notice that? It doesn't say in the yard. It doesn't say in the pen. It says the woman had a fatted calf in the house. So that means that when Saul had to come in and pretend like he was something shorter than he really was, and after all, he was half the man he should be at this moment anyways because he's running from God, he had to walk around old Elsie on the way into the seance table. Imagine, now look at, houses aren't big things. You know, in the Middle East, houses half of this, you know, half of the area that you guys are sitting at in regards to this little narrow arrowway here, alleyway. And imagine it's like we're in it like, and she's like, oh, by the way, well, hey, let me let me let me make you something, you know. And I, and this is kind of a weird thing. Now there is something to be learned from this. She took flour. We read she kneaded it, baked unleavened bread from it, brought it before Saul and his servants, and they ate. And then they rose and they went up that night. They went away that night. Now please hear me. Saul is now used to saying no, and no is his answer to everything. It appears, but this battle is unavoidable. What God does when we are in compromise is he puts us in a place, to be honest, where we can't avoid the battle. We try to fight. We try to get away from it. We try to flee. And it keeps just chasing us down. And basically, ultimately what happens is we get to this place where we won't even take the help we need. We won't. Now, what the one thing Saul needs more than anything else is to obey God. Humble himself, step down, and let God do what he wants to do. But because he's not doing that. He's, in a, he's declared war against God, and God's become his enemy. Saul has chosen sides, and Saul has chosen the side against God. But now, now hear me on this. Saul's in a place where someone's actually trying to help him, maybe for a wrong reason, get him out of the house, but some, they're trying to help him because he's too weak, and he won't listen. So you know what? By God's grace, Saul actually has a couple servants, too, that are enough to say, you know what? Let's back this up and say, no, you really, really need this. Oh, you wish that they'd tell him that he needs to do more, like obey God. And we all need people like that. That, you know, when we're in those moments where it's like emotional and we're freaked out and things are rough and all we want to do is do something stupid, you've got to have at least a couple people that say, you know what, that's just not acceptable. You are not going to be alone tonight. You are going to be with us. You know what, we're going to do this thing right. And we're not going to just go and be stupid. Let's, let's, let's do what strengthens you, not tears you down now. So at least for the moment, Saul had that moment. But now we know what's, you know what's due. Saul's got an expiration date, and he's got to wake up and get into a battle he can't avoid and die there. And you know why he's going to die there? Because he'll never, ever finally just say, yes, Lord. 
you live your whole life saying no to God, the only place left is to die. As we go to prayer, let me remind you, there are two people that are pushed. David who's in a backslide because he's given up hope. He's tired of, the, of all of the empty promises. He's tired of being, you know, being in a place where he just has to constantly feel like, like he's just he's the outcast and he's a wanted man. He's tired of it. So he flees out into the world, tries to go and find himself in some little remote place where he can just blend in with the woodwork. But now he's forced in a place where he's going to have to go and he may have to shoot Saul. He may have to shoot his brothers. Have you thought that through? Family members that he was raised with. The brother of a girl he may have loved when he was a little boy. The people that will be standing on the other side of this battle are the people he was raised with. What do you do at that moment? When you realize if you're really going to take this stand now, you're going to have to stand on one side or the other. Something's going to have to happen. Because either side of this declares war with the other. You know, the Bible says you can't serve two masters. I've learned this too. No matter how big your lips are, you can't kiss more than one person at the same time. You're going to love one and hate the other. That's what he says. You're going to despise one and serve the other, but you really can't serve two masters. You can't serve money and God. You can't serve the world and God. Because in the end of it all, sooner or later, you're going to have to, the, the battle lines are going to get drawn and you don't want to find yourself on one side or the other. You want to be conscious about that choice before that line's drawn in front of you. Because the line needs to be drawn in your heart first. So let me ask you, what side are you on tonight? Are you in that place like David where you've seen enough of this stuff and you're so tired of looking at it that all you really want to do is say, you know what, forget it. I'll embrace hopelessness and just go back to stupidity. At least I know what I'm doing. Or do you finally say, you know what, I'm tired of fighting you, God. You really deserve so much more of me than I'm giving. Forgive me for the way that I feel in my focus on myself that I'm entitled to be a really nasty person because I know I could be so much better than this. But i got to give you the throne to do that. Jesus deserves to be our Lord and not just our Savior. And when we hand him our life, we have to be able to say, you know what, i got to stop telling you what's right. You deserve this throne, not me. I never deserved it. Saul now has death in front of him. Please don't let that be you. Because you can do that and still do all the right things at church for the moment, but it's going to fall out of your mouth sooner or later that your heart's just not where it belongs. And God really doesn't want that. What God really wants are people that actually talk about the goodness of God, not the badness of everything else. But the abundance of our heart causes our mouths to speak. It's the overflow valve. So what's our heart really full of? Tonight, as we go to prayer, let's let God clean us. Scoop us out deep, deep, deep and clean out all that muck and then replace it with obedience and let God do beautiful things. And the calling that God's placed on every one of your lives, he never changed his mind and he knew that David would go through this before he ever became king. Not the one that, you know, the one that will actually rule the people. Because God's made you so influential and he's blessed you with that, what are you going to do with that? Do you really think you can go and hide and somehow that will be okay? He's called you to change the world. And like it or not, you're going to. It would be great if you did it intentionally. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you for these two powerful chapters and where David is at this moment. I know that it's got to be horrible for you as you look back 3,000 years ago where this was really happening. How sad that must have been. But God, I do know this. You also know that David would come back. And I know the father must have grieved every day that his prodigal son was gone in the story. Because he didn't. And Lord, I know that we can slip out and be the empty shell of works 
and have no love for you like we should. No obedience, no surrender. And we could be doing crazy things and somehow end up pretending like we're doing great things for you when really all we're really doing is trying to keep both sides happy. But when two sides have declared war on each other, I don't know how we could do that. So tonight in this room, Lord, I pray that you would really speak to our hearts. Can I just say, forgive me, God, for where I've allowed it to be about me and my own heart. And because of that, I could grab offense or entitlement or self-vindication And truth be told, Lord, I still deserve hell, except by your grace I would go. And I want to be one, Lord, that my lips are for kindness and to speak your truth and hope and joy. To live where your yoke is easy and your burden is light, not grabbing a hold of a yoke that's ill-fitting, that's clearly not yours or a heaviness you've never ordained for me. So Lord God, as we seek to surrender to you, Jesus, your death at the cross for all we've ever done, thought, felt, intended, may we also embrace the lordship of your resurrection, Lord, and in doing so, I'll give you the room to reinvent us. And God, I pray, please, make us people you've called us to be world changers so thank you for the way you've changed the world because we are not the one but a tool in your hands and you are the one who created this universe you certainly know how to change it any way you want use us Lord to transform this world to you but first transform our world to you and I pray tonight we would be people who clearly see a yes in our lives to you whatever your will be for us in Jesus name Amen